Hey, what's up everyone? It is Pastor Marcus here from the storychurchproject.com. Welcome to the Story Church Project podcast where our focus is how to redesign the local Adventist church to tell its story loud to a culture that is no longer listening. I hope that you're blessed by what you hear and that it inspires you to make a difference in your local church today. everyone, it is Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to the Story Church Project for our first episode of 2019. I'm super stoked guys, I'm super stoked because this year we've got some new things that are going to be coming out. There's a, a new uh, free ebook that's going to be coming out uh, for those who are subscribed to the mailing list on uh, how to study the Bible with postmoderns and a few other things as well. So uh, once again, thank you for, for tuning in uh, again for 2019. And I really hope that throughout this year, as the new things roll out, blog posts, podcast episodes, etc., that you'll be really blessed and inspired uh, to redesign your local Adventist church for mission. Now, as we launch off 2019, uh, we're going to be doing it uh, slightly different. There's something, this is, this is new, what I'm doing here is what I'm saying. And that is, this entire episode is a question and answer episode. So as 2018 was ending, I put up a post on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook uh, for people who had questions related to Adventism and church culture to go ahead and share their questions. And I got an overwhelming amount of questions, guys. So I want to at least begin with a little bit of a disclaimer. I'm not going to be able to answer all of them. Uh, There was just way too many of them. So here's what I'm going to do. Two things. Number one, Today, I'm going to answer the questions that came through on social media uh, and also those who replied to the mailing list, uh, on the mailing list. Um, I'm going to be answering those questions as best as possible. But there were some questions, and here's the second point. There were some questions that were so profound that I'm actually going to dedicate an entire episode to it. So if you don't hear your question answered today, chances are it's because it was one of those questions that's going to get an entire episode all on its own. So for example, somebody asked, you know, like, um, how should Adventists relate to politics and social justice and things like that? I mean, there's no way I can answer that in five minutes, right? So there's going to be a whole episode dedicated to that. I'm going to interview someone who's like, that's their space. That's a the situation or, or, or a theme that they speak into very well. And I'm going to bring them on the show and we're going to have a conversation and you guys can derive some meaning and value from that. So for today, I'm taking some of the more simple questions that are, are, are still meaningful, but a little bit simpler that I, I think I can manage in a short period of time. Now, one more thing before I start, and it's this. Uh, some of the questions that came through, uh, I won't be answering at all. And I want to explain why before I move on. Uh, some of the questions that came through were a little bit more to do with, I don't know if this is the right phrase, but probably a little bit more in, in, in the realm of Bible trivia. Uh, now, that's not a bad thing. You know, I think uh, I got some questions like about aliens and stuff like that. You know, what the Bible says is not necessarily a bad thing, uh, but it's just not the focus of the Story Church Project. So our focus here is the narrative of Adventism and the structure of the local church as it relates to mission, reaching postmoderns, reaching the secular culture. And so that's what I want to focus on. And so any questions that came 
through that were more like sort of trivia, if, if that's the right word, I'm not really sure what word to use, um, that isn't directly related to those particular themes, uh, I won't be addressing. But hey, look, you can always feel free to message me privately because I still enjoy those questions. I just want to keep the integrity of the project uh, by focusing on the things that uh, it's designed for. So I'm going to begin by uh, taking on the questions from Instagram, because that's where I got like the vast majority of the questions came through Instagram, you crazy Instagrammers, you guys bombarded me. Um, but no, I love it. I love it. It's really cool. Uh, I want to take the opportunity to answer those questions. And, uh, and I hope that you guys are blessed by this episode, by the questions that you hear, and hopefully by the answers as well. So let's go ahead and get started with the first question. This one came through on Instagram, and it reads like this. How do Christians rid themselves of the mentality that they are better than others? Are we not all the recipients of the same grace? Now, that's a really, really good question. And it's an important question because Christians who act like they're better than others, you know, this holier-than-thou attitude, are Christians who get in the way of mission. Because when you have that kind of mentality, when you have that kind of attitude, and it's present in your local church, man, it is a massive barrier for reaching the culture. So uh, let me answer this uh, quickly. And, and you know, I, guess, I suppose now that I'm getting ready to answer this question, I can just jump ahead and say none of my answers are going to be exhaustive or the end of the conversation. These are just I'm answering from my perspective, guys. I'm answering from my experience. And so uh, I don't pretend to be you know, some guru. Uh, but here is just what I think about it. So on to this first question, it, it, you know, how can Christians rid themselves of the mentality that they're better than others? Are we not all recipients of the same grace? The answer is yes, we are all recipients of the same grace. But the other answer is that not everyone's aware of that. And uh, even within the church, there are there are many people who are not aware that we are all recipients of the same grace. And you say, well, how so? And I think the answer is very simple. Uh, in the church, you have people, you have two kinds of people. You've got people who are convinced that the church has the truth and that it has a good ideological structure and theological narrative and it all makes sense and, you know, doctrinal system is impeccable and, you know, they heard the arguments and they heard the presentations and they heard the the the, the, the messages and they were like convinced in their head, oh, this, is, this sounds really good. And so they joined the church, right? Um, and, and, then there's another group of people who, yeah, they get that part of it, but then they've also had what I refer to as a conversion experience. So they're not just convinced, they're also converted. And, and the thing about a conversion experience that transcends an experience of simply being convinced is that a conversion experience, uh, it messes you up in a good way. And so when you actually have a conversion experience, you are confronted with the reality of who you are before God. And it's, it's a real painful experience and it's a real just like life altering experience because what you're doing is you're coming face to face with God and, and you're confronting your authentic self and you're confronting who you really are and your own sense of brokenness. The rest of the world kind of tends to fade away into the background and it's just you naked before God. And when you are in that space, when you have that experience, you walk away with a real keen sense of how messed up you are. And then grace all of a sudden is this overwhelmingly beautiful thing because it's not just, you know, it's not just grace as a theological concept. It's grace as a breath of fresh air 
right? It's grace as, you know, someone drowning in the ocean and, and they're drowning and they're drowning and they're, they're trying desperately. I don't know if you've ever almost drowned before. I have. It's a horrible experience and, and you come out of the water and you, you finally take a breath and it's just it's like the biggest breath you've ever taken and it's the most beautiful breath you've ever taken. And that is what a conversion experience is like. Now, I'm not trying to be all dramatic here and say that everyone's conversion experience is full of emotion and, and you know, explosions. Sometimes it happens really slowly and over time but everyone's conversion experience has the element of brokenness of being broken and the thing is once you walk away from that experience you can't then turn around and think you're better than other people because the premise of a conversion experience is that you come face to face with your own depravity and once you've realized that, then how do you turn around and say, oh, well, I'm better than that person? You can't because <laughs> you're too aware of your own brokenness. And that is the experience that so many people in church have never had. They've never had the experience of really being broken, of really coming face to face with their own depravity. And so one of the things I say to my churches when I preach, and I say this quite often, I say it in different ways, is that the easiest place to hide from God is in church. That's the easiest place to hide from God. The easiest way to hide from God is to cover your brokenness with theology. And you use it as a mask. You use it as something that you can, you know, cover and hide. And, and then you begin to argue about these things and, and you become obsessed with these things when the reality is you have not yet experienced the brokenness that God wants for you because out of that brokenness is the healing that he has for you and so that's you know a bit a bit more long-winded that i wanted to go there but i hope that that makes sense and that you can derive some sort of meaning and value from that answer i believe the reason why there are christians who think they're better than others is because they're not really christians they're not they haven't been converted and uh, until we all have that experience, we're always going to have a culture of holier-than-thou attitudes who have yet to recognize how broken they really are and how beautiful grace really is in light of that brokenness. So I hope that helps a little bit. I'm going to move on to the next question um, because I am keenly aware of my own uh, weakness as an American. I love to talk, so I can just like go on forever on one question. So let me <laughs> let me check myself and move on. All right, the next question is this. Why is Ellen White at the very center of Adventism? Why do Adventists give her so much regard? Now, this is an important question as well, because in local church context, when we have an unhealthy theology then that gets in the way of mission and i have been to local churches that have an unhealthy view of god unhealthy theology and oftentimes that's reflected in an unhealthy relationship with the ministry of ellen white so i want to answer this question quickly and it's basically this um ellen white is not at the very center of adventism the truth is ellen white is at the very center of some adventist adventism if that makes sense She's at the very center of how some people express their Adventism, but she's certainly not at the very center of Adventism as a narrative. Uh, to, be, to be quite honest, I can sit down with you and explain the entire Adventist narrative from cover to cover in scripture and never once bring up Ellen White because that is what Adventism is about. It's about exploring the character of God through scripture and we're thankful for the ministry of Ellen White and we derive a lot of wisdom and leadership and guidance from her because we do believe that she was prophetic and that she was used of God and inspired. Uh, but that doesn't mean that she has an equal footing to the Bible or a greater, you know, 
footing to the Bible. Uh, the truth is, even in her own life, she was constantly people pointing people, pardon, uh, back to Scripture and telling people, hey guys, this is where it's at. Build your faith here and here alone. And and I I celebrate that, you know, and I and I definitely that's the kind of um, faith experience that I would like all Adventists to have. Don't put Ellen White at the center. And look, I know where the question is coming from because I've been to churches that are like that. I grew up in a church that was like not everyone, but there were some people who were like that. Were like Ellen White this and Ellen White that and Ellen White the other. And it's like man, by the time you know you get to the end of it, you're sick of hearing her name, and you, you know you you actually end up you know resenting her, even though it's not really her. It's the people who. Who are misusing her um, and so it actually took me some time before I was able to really appreciate the ministry of Ellen White because of the negativity that was associated with it you know based on how other people uh, had presented it and used it in my context so I get the question man and I feel you um, but my short answer would be, look, she's not at the center of Adventism. Um, she's at the center of how some Adventists express their Adventism. And to be quite honest, that is an Adventism that is not really very Adventist. Because if it really was Adventist, she wouldn't be at the center. Christ would be at the center. Um, and his word would be at the center. So I hope that helps a little bit. Uh, I'm going to move on to the next question. And it's, it goes like this. How can we as youth slash young adults encourage evangelism, discipleship, etc. in this day without rubbing older, maybe more traditional Adventist, uh, Seventh-day Adventist members the wrong way? Really, really, really good question. Absolutely love it. And I hope that I can do some justice to this right now. Um, so the, on, the, the, the honest answer is this. Look, I'm a young person as well, all right? Uh, I'm, a, I'm, I'm a millennial and, uh, and also happen to be a pastor. And, and this is an experience that I grew up in in my church. Like there was this tension in the church that I grew up in where it felt like there was this youth versus grown-ups um, vibe. You know, it's like we were at this cold war with one another. Like there weren't any fists flying, but there was a lot of conversations going on where you know the, the old people in our heads is like they were they were having conversations and meetings on how they would oppress us and then we would gather together to have our meetings on how we would liberate ourselves from the oppression of the older generation um and it didn't it didn't help in any way shape or form the vast majority of the youth in the church that i grew up in left church um shortly after we hit 18 19 they were gone um, and it's really, really sad. So how can we as youth, young adults, encourage evangelism and discipleship um, in this day and time, which I, I, I'm assuming what the questioner means by that is, how can we do this in a relevant way without rubbing the older members the wrong way? I want to point out two simple things that I hope can be of value to you. Number one, um, you have to have conversations. That is like, the bottom line. And the thing that I found is that people are more willing to go to war than they are to sit down and have a chat. And I don't understand that. I don't know. It's weird. But that's just the way we are as humans. It happens in every sphere of life. Like we're more willing to have a war than we are to sit down and just have a conversation and get to know one another and figure one another out. Now, I do have... Um, a, a fellow podcaster his name is uh, well actually he's he's not a podcaster but he although i think he might be planning on doing it soon but he is a fellow influencer uh the host of the project uh, of the of the website humans of adventism uh, his name is caleb isle and he's a member of the orangeburg seventh day adventist church which i believe is in south carolina i could be wrong about that 
but he shares a story where you know he started attending this church and it was definitely a church with a lot of people from the older generation and the church was you know it was it wasn't you know there wasn't a lot of young people there it wasn't vibrant it wasn't growing and and what they did was they actually had a series of meetings where they sat down and just got to know the youth and got to understand how young people think and how they relate and and, and what their value structures are and and that was a catalyst for a whole new culture in the church there's a there's a lot of young people in the church now and it's, it's been a big change a lot of support good relationship between the older youth uh, i'm sorry between the older generation and the younger generation and really the catalyst for that was just conversation that's it and you know i think sometimes we're looking like for these magic formulas and they don't really exist it's the, the simplest answer is usually the right one and and it's conversation man now the second thing that i would um encourage is young people um we often approach the 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 transformation of the local church with this posture old folk you guys have had your chance you've stuffed it up look at how dead the church is now move out of the way it's our turn that's that's usually i mean maybe i'm exaggerating a little bit or maybe i'm confessing i don't know <laughs> but that's usually how we approach that conversation and that element and uh and to be honest i i can relate to that because you know we can see the church dying and we can see people not connecting especially young people and we can see our friends leaving and we're just like you know what i, I don't want to placate this mentality anymore i just want to go to war and bring some change and um but the thing is it doesn't really work it's a whole lot of energy and pain and broken relationships for for something that never really fully provides the fruit that we think it will and so my encouragement is this rather than undoing what the older generation has done rather than coming at it from that perspective come at it from this perspective what can you do to add to the legacy that they've already started. All right, so rather than saying, you guys, it's time for you to get out of the way, it's our turn now, you're saying, you guys have started a legacy here at this local church. You've kept it alive all of these years with blood, sweat, and tears. And we wanna add to that legacy. We want to keep your story alive. We wanna take it to the next level. How can we do that? How can we work together? to add to the legacy that you guys have already started. If you come at it from that perspective, you're gonna have way more success than, hey guys, it's time for you to move aside, it's our turn now. Uh, that is an ego-driven model that, you know, not only does it not work, but it's not Christ-like. So I hope that helps a little bit. I'm gonna move on to the next question now, and it says this, why do we focus on baptism as the pinnacle of a new Christian's journey rather than the start of their walk? I.e., you have to understand all the fundamental beliefs as a prerequisite to baptism. Uh, it's interesting. I had a similar discussion uh, earlier today with someone, um, uh, not identical to this question, but but very related. Um, and so, I think that this is of actually a really, really profound question. Um, number one, I'm going to try and work out my answer here as I go. Number one, I don't think that baptism should be the pinnacle of a new Christian's journey. And any local church that focuses on baptism as the pinnacle of a new Christian's journey uh, needs to shift their mindset because it is not a healthy mindset. Um, 
baptism is not the end baptism is not the graduation baptism is not the i have arrived the you know the ceremony for the saints baptism is the beginning baptism is someone saying hey look i get grace i get the gospel i get what god is doing i want to be a part of his family i want to be a part of his church and i want to spread this this story through the world and and so really what you do when you get baptized is you start the journey you know the, the that's where it really begins it doesn't end there uh, and so I don't believe personally that baptism should be, you know, a metric by which we measure success or by which we, you know, measure someone's spiritual development. It is the beginning. It is not the end. They are babes in Christ, not they haven't fully matured. And so what that means is I encourage every church to have a discipleship pathway, right? Develop a discipleship pathway where you can lead someone from not knowing Jesus at all to being fully involved in ministry. And that is a metric for success. So at my local churches where I'm working right now, the Vic Park SDA Church and the Jundalup SDA Church here in Western Australia, we both have, a, both churches, we have a 10-year plan and strategy on how we are going to grow as local churches. And baptisms is not one of the metrics that we have for success. The metric that we have for success is how many people are involved in mission. That's the metric that we have for success. So if we have 50 baptisms this year, but we have got the same amount of people involved in mission next year than there were this year, then we're not succeeding despite those 50 baptisms. Success is we've got 50 new people involved in mission this year. Yes, now we're talking success. But if, if it's just about who we're dunking in water, um, I think that's a really bad metric. And really the statistics are showing us that so many people leave the church after joining it because there's no discipleship pathway they get baptized and then it's like that's it that's the end and people forget about them and they're not nurturing them and they're not equipping them and they're not challenging them to grow um and i think if we had those discipleship pathways we wouldn't freak out so much about whether or not someone is like fully committed to 28 fundamental beliefs or you know anything like that like honestly I do believe that there is an element of you want people to know what the value structure and the narrative of the local church they're joining is. Uh, you want them to be familiar with that so they don't, you know, so they can make an informed decision. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I think that sometimes we push that to such an extreme and um, it's not it's not healthy. But if we have a discipleship pathway, then we know, hey, when this person is baptized, they're not finished. They're going to keep learning. They're going to keep growing. It's going to continue. And um, and I think if we had that, then we wouldn't freak out so much about, you know, people checking, doing the checklist before baptism. Um, all right. So I'm going to move on to the next question. And uh, this one says, I'm a current theology student at Avondale. What advice do you have for theology students and future pastors in the making? Uh, really good question. Uh, first of all, um, for for those of you who are listening right now, who are theology majors, um, and, and, you know, obviously the... Uh, the student who wrote this question congratulations man i'm really i'm really excited for you really happy for you and um really excited for what god is going to be doing in your life and in your future so just want to drop that congratulations in there uh the question is again uh what advice do i have and so i just want to say one simple little thing and if there's again if there's any theology majors out there who are listening to this who are following the story church project feel free to message me anytime like i'm not a celebrity you know um <laughs> feel free to message me anytime just say hello and um and i'm happy to chat with you and if you if you're looking for any kind of guidance or questions or anything you know i don't have all the answers but i'm, I'm always happy to dialogue so uh one piece of advice that i'd give is this um 
love people. That is the essence of leadership, right? The essence of leadership is not how charismatic you are, how innovative you are. The essence of leadership is how much you care about people, especially servant leadership, right? Um, people are messed up. People are broken. And so are you. We all are. And when it comes to leadership, one of the key things that I learned, especially as a soldier in the army, as a sergeant, was you spell leadership C-A-R-E. That's how you spell it. It's about caring for other people. There's a lot of stuff that you as a leader are going to mess up. You're going to mess it up. All right. So don't even try and be perfect. You're going to mess up a lot of stuff. Even if you do get it perfect, there's always going to be somebody that complains. The one thing you cannot get wrong is caring about people. Now, if you don't care about people and you don't want to care about people, then it's not just a matter of not being a pastor. It's a matter of not being a leader, period, because that is what leadership is about. It's about caring about people, caring about people who um, are not like you, caring about people who are not, you know, your your crowd caring about people whose ideological constructs are different from yours maybe they're a bit too liberal for your taste maybe they're a bit too conservative whatever gotta care about people and that's my biggest advice man when you go into a local church care about people and make sure they know you care about them because that's going to take you places and it's not really about that anyway but it's it's just about the the inherent and objective beauty that there is in caring about others so i hope that helps man and you know like i said any theology majors including the guy who wrote this question oh, look at me i just assumed it was a guy no i didn't i actually read the name um <laughs> but um yeah look just uh send me an email i'm happy to happy to chat i'm gonna move on to the next question now it's a big one <clears throat> and it goes like this how do we reach lgbt youth how can we present god's word without it sounding judgmental boom now this is one of the biggest questions on the cultural consciousness today in and outside the church so this is actually a question that i'm going to dedicate an entire episode to maybe more than one episode to be honest i may do quite a few episodes just on this topic alone um but i want to do something quick here today that i think is foundational it's simple but it's foundational and then in the future i want to address this uh in in different you know in in, in more detail so one of the biggest problems that we have as Christians, and this is true for reaching postmodern culture, and it's also true for reaching LGBT and just about anyone who's secular, is we approach the spiritual journey from a truth-telling posture. All right, We lean in on the culture as truth-tellers. Uh, we lean in on the culture as gurus, as proclaimers. And and what that basically does is, you know, in practical terms, is when you sit down with, a, with someone in the LGBT community as a truth teller, as someone who is leaning, that's your posture. Your posture is to communicate, to tell this, you know, idea that's in your head um, to another person what is your main concern in that conversation? Your main concern is making sure that they understand what's right and wrong, right? And that, that's how we approach it. And the thing is, that approach is absolutely horrendous. Um, not only is it narcissistic and culturally elitist, um, it simply doesn't work. And so my recommendation, my advice, uh, not only for the LGBT community, but just really for reaching postmodern culture in general, and even for our young people growing up in church today, millennials and Gen Z post millennials, is um, 
we gotta have what I what 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 I prefer to refer to, and I didn't make this word up. Um, I got it from J.R. Foresteros, um, which, by the way, if you look him up, he's got some really cool podcasts. Um, but uh, it, it's called truth-seeking relationships. Now, what is a truth-seeking relationship? A truth-seeking relationship is when I sit down at the table with another human being and I say, "Tell me your story. I'll tell you mine, and we'll both see, seek truth together." Now, that's a whole lot different from let me tell you what the truth is. Let me tell you what's right and wrong. Now, some people say, oh, Marcus, I don't know. This sounds a bit relativistic. You know, your truth, my truth, and neither one of them is really true. And we're just having this open dialogue that's going to lead nowhere. Uh, and that's not what I'm suggesting. It's not what I'm recommending. Um, what I'm recommending is that we seek truth together in an honest and safe way where a person who is a member of the LGBT community can actually sit down and have a discussion with you without feeling judged, without feeling ostracized, without feeling condemned, without feeling dirty, without feeling like you're only there to communicate to them what they already have heard a hundred thousand times. Um, they don't need the Bible verses all over again. What they need is people to discuss and to lean in uh, with love and, and just hear their story hear their pain, hear their joys, hear their excitement, understand their journey a little bit. Um, uh, just a few weeks ago, I sat down with with, uh, with a young lady who's uh, LGBT, and, and we had an amazing discussion. We, we spent about a, an hour and a half just talking, and, you know, I just asked questions. You know, I wasn't there to, you know, shove theology down her throat. She'd heard that stuff already. Just ask questions, you know, you know, tell me your story, and, 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 and I mean just trying to really dig into where she was in her walk with God and how she was feeling about herself and her own, you know, her own perception of herself. And it was beautiful. It was redemptive and, and beautiful and powerful. And we're getting together again um, this, this coming new year. And so, you know, that would be my encouragement, man. Like, don't engage these conversations or these, this, this community with a, I'm here to tell you what's up. You know, engage these conversations with, look, I'm seeking truth. You're seeking truth. Let's seek it together. Let's see what we can find. Let me hear your story. Uh, I'll let you hear mine. And you can have those honest conversations where you say, well, look, honestly, um, theologically speaking, if you just want to if you just want to hear what I, you know, what, what I believe the Bible teaches about this, uh, here's what I understand. How do you feel about that? You know, how does that make you feel? You know, like and, and what I have found is that most people in the in the LGBT community, they don't mind that at all like they don't mind someone saying well here's how i feel you know from the bible um you know and and, and what do you think about that what, what they hate is when you just come at them with verses and hammer them over the head and you, you're not even you don't even care about them all right so i think i'm starting to go in circles now i'm, I'm starting to repeat myself now but I, I hope that makes sense i'm gonna do a whole episode on this but i hope that that little bit there you can you can get some value from that. All right, I'm going to go to the next question. How can millennials reach other millennials in or through evangelism without getting involved in pop culture? Talking about pop culture, is pop culture necessary as a youth leader? How much should a youth leader know about pop culture? Is it relevant? So there's a lot of questions uh, in one question, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it my best crack. Uh, how can millennials reach other millennials through evangelism without getting involved in pop culture? Uh, it's a bit of a tough question to answer because I'm not entirely sure what the questioner means by getting involved in pop culture, um, but I'm going to do my best here. 
when we look at the way evangelism worked in the book of Acts, especially through Paul, we see that Paul went to Mars Hill, where all the Greeks were, and he preached the gospel there. And uh, before he preached the gospel to them, Paul spent time studying their poets. He got to know their poetry. He read their poetry. We don't know how much, but he did it. Um, he spent time looking at their idols, understanding their worldview. And then he contextualized the message of Jesus and the gospel within the worldview of the Greeks that he was speaking to. Now, when the book of Hebrews was written, which it was written for Jews, what the author does is he looks at Moses and the angels and Abraham and, and all these patriarchs, and he traces the centrality and relevance of Jesus through Old Testament narrative. Paul doesn't do that when he goes to Mars Hill. And that's really, really important because what you see is two totally different approaches to the same fundamental message. One is rooted in Old Testament narrative and the other is rooted in pagan narrative. One is borrowing from Moses and Abraham and the angels to explain and, and, and celebrate the supremacy of Christ. And the other is talking about the unknown God and your poets have said, etc., etc. doesn't say anything about Moses or, or any of that stuff because the Greeks didn't know that stuff. That wasn't their story. That wasn't their narrative. And so what we find is that Paul immersed himself in the popular culture of the day in order to contextualize his message to reach the Greeks. Now, this is something that missionaries do all the time. This is not like some strange thing, you know, not only do we find it in Paul, but this is something that missionaries do quite often when they go to different, um, different countries uh, to, to preach the gospel. They will learn the worldviews and they will contextualize their message to reaching people. And for some reason in the West, we are okay with that unless it's pop culture. When it has to do with pop Western culture, all of a sudden, no, 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 stay away from it. Don't, don't look at it. Don't listen to it. None of that. And look, if the question is, should we get involved with pop culture, you know, to the degree that we worship it, like the, like the secular culture does? Of course not. Um, but I do not believe that we should isolate ourselves from it. All right. I think we need to understand pop culture because pop culture is the voice of the culture. Uh, that is where you're going to find the zeitgeist of the age. Uh, understand the value structure of, of the youth is by listening to the songs that they listen to. Uh, art is the way through which people communicate their, their, their deepest sense of you know, self. And you find that. You find that in music. You find that in movies. You find that in literature. So I don't believe that we should isolate ourselves from it. I do think we need to have boundaries, of course. I'm not saying, hey, if you want to reach the culture, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey was really popular, so everybody, let's go watch it, you know, because we got to reach the culture. Like, I'm not saying that, all right? That this clearly we got to have boundaries and, and we understand the spiritual life and, you know, we got to protect the avenues of the soul, as Ellen White refers to them. I like that. I like that phrase, by the way. It's kind of cool. But, um... But at the same time, on the other flip side, this idea of just completely closing ourselves off is, uh, is not 
not a thing. I don't think it's it's a, it's a good idea and it doesn't work. You know, you just end up being the kind of person who can only interact with and dialogue with people who see the world exactly the way you do. And that is not a way to build the kingdom of God. So, you know, is pop culture necessary as a youth leader? Again, like, you know, what exactly do you mean? Like, do, do you need to like know all the latest hits and see all the movies and read all the books? No, you don't. Um, but you gotta have a healthy working knowledge of it, and uh, and and I hope that I hope that's helpful. Um, all right, I'm gonna take on the next question, and uh, this is this is a, a long one, so I'm gonna try and, and read it quickly. I've heard not only you but lots of ministers in the church talk a lot about postmodernism and reaching postmoderns, etc. But over the last few years, I've been learning and reading about what has been emerging after postmodernism, metamodernism. And this sort of synthesis of modernism and postmodernism and oscillation between the two. Have you looked into metamodernism and what do you make of it? Do you know of thinkers slash theologians, etc. conversing about this? Really, really, really good question. So let me answer this in two ways. Uh, first, yes, I have heard of metamodernism. Uh, I was introduced to metamodernism by uh, Shelley Poole, who is uh, an artist from here in Australia, who is actually currently um, working on an evangelistic program that utilizes art and art gallery as a way of reaching the culture. It's, I think it's awesome. I'm going to get her on this podcast sometime and interview her about that because it's a, it's, it's a really innovative and brilliant idea, in my opinion. Um, so yes, I am familiar with metamodernism. And when I use the word postmodern, I'm actually referring to all of that stuff. So th there, look, there are so many labels in the culture today. There's post-truth, there's post-Christian, there's post-secular, there's post-humanism. You know, there, obviously there's post-modern and meta-modern and it just goes on and on and on and alter-modern as well. Uh, it just goes on and on. When I use the word post-modern, um, I'm actually using it as a as a means of referring to the zeitgeist of the culture, you know, the, the cultural consciousness, where it is broadly right now. Um, because the reality is that I've, you know, when you have an online project like this, you've got to market it, uh, but I can't market it using words nobody knows. Because if I did, you know, if I put on, you know, Meta Modern, so many people would be like, what in the world is that? Eh, not interested, moving on. It's only the geeks would be like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll look into that. Um, so I use the word postmodern most often because people are familiar with it to some degree. And when they see it, they know that you're talking about secular culture. Um, and, and, you know, that's sort of the focus. However, I am familiar with metamodernism and, and the different, you know, ideologies that are there. Now, metamodernism is really interesting because uh, just to speak to this for a, for a moment or two, um, metamodernism, as the question uh, says, it, it's an oscillation between modernism and postmodernism. Now, to my understanding, the oscillation happens in the realm of epistemology. So how do we acquire knowledge? How do we uh, acquire truth? What is the source of truth? So modernism believes that there are multiple sources of truth and we have to explore them all. Postmodernism believes there is no source of truth whatsoever. Um, and so metamodernism bounces back and forth between the modern definition of truth source 
and the postmodern definition of truth source. And uh, pre-modernism, for those of you who are probably unfamiliar with this, is the idea that there is one source of truth, and that one source of truth is religion. And uh, in Western context, that would be the Bible, the priest, the pastor, the church. That's the one source of truth. Uh, modernism says, no, there are many sources of truth. There is science and experience and you know philosophy and all these different sources of truth. And then postmodernism says, actually, none of them. <laughs> none of them work. There is no source of truth. So... Um, Yes, metamodernism bounces back and forth in the realm of epistemology between the idea that there are multiple sources of truth and the idea that there are no sources of truth whatsoever. Um, and so it is interesting because this is an emerging paradigm through which people are living. However, I want to I put a huge sort of comma there like a massive bold comma that i've written with a gigantic marker because the reality is that when we talk about postmodernism we the question is what are we really talking about and now this is really important in the next week i'm going to finish writing a new ebook and it's going to be at the storychurchproject.com for free the only thing you'll have to do is subscribe to the mailing list and you can download this book. And one of the points that I'm going to be making in the book is what are we talking about when we talk about postmodernism? Because here's the thing. A lot of people think, and I'm looking at this from a purely pragmatic perspective. A lot of people think if you understand postmodern philosophy, you understand postmodern culture. And it's not true. All right, postmodern philosophy, I want you to picture, I want you to imagine a group of, of, of people sitting at a table eating a huge meal, right? It's just the table's loaded with food. There's all kinds of food at the table, and they're all eating this food. And as they're eating this food, there's crumbs falling from the table onto the floor. And then, you know, the dogs come and lick up the crumbs. All right. Now, we've all seen that scenario before at Thanksgiving dinner, so it shouldn't be too hard to imagine. The people sitting at the table are the postmodern philosophers, and the large meal is postmodern philosophy. Postmodern philosophy is an extremely complex philosophy that no one has ever been able to define. So to this day, the, the, there is no consensus on what constitutes a true postmodern philosophy. There's, there's some common themes, but for the most part, it's, it's something that is undefined. Now, as they're eating this large meal, there are crumbs that fall from the table onto the floor, and along come the puppies and, uh, and enjoy the crumbs. Now, those, those puppies represent the culture. And that's essentially what's happening. When the culture takes on postmodernism, what it's really doing is it's taking on the crumbs that have fallen from the table of the philosophers. Now, why is that important? It's important because most people in the culture have no idea what postmodernism is. I have found that Christians talk about postmodernism way more than postmoderns talk about postmodernism. In fact, most of them have never even heard the word. Now, I don't know. I could be wrong about that part of it. It's not like I know every postmodern out there. Um, but 
there is a large number of secular people who are postmodern who have no idea that they are that, that I know personally and who don't even know the meaning of that word most people who are familiar with that word are either people in church circles who've heard sermons about it and pastors harping on about it or people with a degree in art or philosophy or psychology or something like that but for the most part it's not something that everyone's thinking about all the time and this is important because you know metamodernism is an emerging ideology uh, but what you'll find is that understanding this emerging ideology and uh, in and out is not going to be the most useful thing when it comes to reaching the culture. Just like reading all of the postmodern philosophers is not suddenly going to make you able to you know, connect with the postmodern culture. It can be helpful. I'm not saying don't do it. But at the end of the day, you don't need a PhD in philosophy to reach a postmodern culture. What you need are some pretty, all you need are some, are some really basic concepts and ideas that you need to understand. And I'm not going to go into them here because we're going to have a lot more of this coming up in the, in the podcast in the future. So I'm not going to totally go into it. Um, but, uh, you know, the ebook is going to be really helpful with that. So if you haven't subscribed to the newsletter, make sure you do that, uh, the mailing list rather. And, um, you can get that ebook but really that is really key like you don't have to be a philosopher you don't have to read all of this crazy stuff in order to fully understand postmoderns and to reach them and connect with them uh, there are some key elements that are important and then from there really it just boils down to interpersonal skills and authenticity knowing how to have meaningful conversations truth seeking conversations with people um, and, and meeting people where they are and loving them as they are, right? Uh, those are some really basic things that go a really, really long way. So I hope that's helpful uh, to that last question. I spent a bit of extra time on that because that is probably the topic that I'm most passionate about. Um, so yes, in short, I am familiar with metamodernism. Um, I, do, I do incorporate it into my, um, my thought process. Um, I just don't harp on about it too much because most people don't know what it is and you know, got to market to what people are familiar with. Uh, so I'm going to take one last question and then we're going to wrap it up. And this last question um, is really, really important. And it goes like this. How can I lead change when I don't have a title? Uh, this came from um, from the mailing list uh, where someone asked, look, I don't have a position in church anymore. I want to lead change, but I don't have that position anymore. So how can I lead change? And uh, let me just wrap up the episode by uh, dropping this bomb here. Um, it's, it's, it's not that big a bomb, but anyway, I'm going to say it. Um, leader, leadership is not about a title. Influence is not about a title. In fact, you know a true leader by how much they can influence others without a title. Right? So it's not like oh if i don't have the title i can't lead change i don't have the title i can't lead change if you believe you need a title to lead change then you're not a leader either that or you are a leader who has been conditioned to think in a false way leadership it has nothing to do with titles leadership is about passion it's about commitment it's about drive i think of jeremiah the prophet when he stopped preaching um, and, and, and then he says that there was this fire in his bones that he could not contain. That's leadership. 
So whether you have a title or not, I want to encourage you to lead change in your local church because you don't need a title to lead change. All you need is that fire in your bones driving you where you know, like, I cannot be at peace until I do this thing right here. And I want to encourage you to go ahead and do it. Now, are there some practical steps that you can take? Sure. I would start out by gathering a small group of people, three or four people, who share your passion. Get together. Have a few gatherings. uh, Pray together. Discuss what is the change that you want to lead. Uh, And then once you've got that core group you know, really strong and, and really committed to these changes that you want to see. Changes that I hope are positive because you can take these same tips and, and do something negative with them. And, you know, if you do, then God will see to you. But uh, you can do something, you know, really positive with the same process. And, and you know, you gather this group together. You, you, you build a collective passion. And then little by little, you grow the group and you look for positive ways in your local church to serve and to have this conversation what you don't want to do what you don't want to do is be the lone ranger in your church who's constantly harping on about the same thing all the time because nothing is going to kill people's excitement for your vision more than you preaching about it all the time i remember i went to a church where there was a, a, a local member who was really passionate about small groups. And, um, and he'd been harping on about the same thing for years and years and years. And he'd never gathered a core group. He'd never started a small group of his own. He'd never spread that passion around in a, you know, in a simple and attractive way to other members in the church. He just took any chance he got to get up in the pulpit during Sabbath school, during service, and just talk about how we need to do small groups. And people would just roll their eyes. It wasn't small groups that they were rolling their eyes at. It was his approach. It was his method. Don't be that guy. All right. Don't be that guy. So, guys, I hope that this was helpful. I hope you guys were able to derive some value from uh, the answers that I've shared here today. Again, they're not the end all be all, uh, but they are, from my perspective and my experience, uh, some ideas and thoughts that I've had uh, related to these themes. There are more questions. Like I said, some of these questions are going to be addressed in uh, episodes that are dedicated all to their own. Some of them I won't be addressing at all just because it, it doesn't really have much to do with the focus of the Story Church Project. But if you have more questions that are related to the story church project and and to what we're doing here uh send them through send them through and i will do another q a episode there's probably two or three questions that came through this week that i'm not addressing today that i'll harp on to that other q a episode um with some new questions that come through so you know just hop on the storychurchproject.com go to the contact tab at the bottom of the page send me a message and say hey this is my question i'd like to see this addressed and i'll be more than happy to do another q a episode or if need be do a whole episode just on that so thank you guys again i hope that you have an amazing uh, 2019 and that throughout this year god inspires you and equips you to redesign your local adventist church to tell its story loud god bless you Thank you for listening to this week's latest episode of the Story Church Project podcast. I hope you were blessed. 
If you haven't yet had a chance, I want to invite you to head over to thestorychurchproject.com and subscribe to the newsletter. Not only will you get the latest updates every week, but I'm also going to send you a free gift straight to your inbox. You don't want to miss it. I'll catch you on the next one.